So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. I will begin by reading Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of God. Let us pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather today over the internet to uh, hear the preaching of your word. Lord, I, I thank you that we have this opportunity to continue in our studies here at Montana Bible College and have this opportunity to hear your word preached over, uh, over this format. So Lord, I, I pray today that you may use me for I am weak, I am inadequate, Lord, I, I need your grace. So, Lord, I pray that you may use me as an unworthy vessel to make much of your word. May I be an instrument in your hands as your word is proclaimed. And if I say anything that is outside of your word, may it fall on deaf ears, Lord. And may your word be made known. May it effect, have effect in our lives. May you mold us and shape us by your word. May it pierce us. May it convict us. And most importantly, may we delight and see the beauty of Christ and the gospel. Lord, I, I thank you for that gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In late December of 1772, in Olney, England, the pastor John Newton took pen to paper to write one of the most beloved songs of all time, Amazing Grace. He needed a song to sing to his congregation on New Year's Day to encourage them as they went, went into the hard toils of life. During that time, life was not easy for them, and so he wanted to encourage them during this new year. So on January 1st, before he got up to sing this song that he wrote, Amazing Grace, he said these words, The Lord gives us many blessings, but unless we are grateful for these, we lose much of the comfort from them. So when you look back on your life, where, where were you when the Lord found you? When you look back on your life, where were you when the Lord found you? For myself, I was a wretch. For John Newton, he had a very troubling childhood. At just, the, at just the age of six, his mother had passed away. 
And throughout most of his life, he spent many years in rebellion, rebelling and fighting against authorities. He had deserted the Royal Navy in his 20s and faced many consequences for, consequences for doing so. He eventually had become a captain of a slave ship, but he later had abandoned his own crew in West Africa and was forced to be a slave himself for, for a certain amount of time. And then after about a year, he was released from his captivity and then went on to live what he considered to be a depraved life. Even his rough shipmates found it shocking to see how much he gave himself over to licentiousness and drunkenness. It was because of his depraved life that later on in his life, he considered himself to be the great blasphemer. And as a young boy, before his mother had died, she had taught him the Bible. She had taught him to pray. She took him to church. And so over the years, he did make attempts to get back to the faith that he once knew that he was raised to believe. He would spend time in prayer and even fasting for some seasons, but it was never consistent. He was always up and down and had no hope of the salvation and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so he continued in his depraved life. But on March 21st, 1748, at the age of 22, he had what he referred to as my great turning point. He was on a return voyage home when his ship was caught in a violent storm. And as he awoke, the ship was seemingly about to sink. So he climbed up the ladder onto the deck, but the man in front of him who had gone before him was thrown off the, off the boat by a wave and never seen again. And so he quickly, in great despair, ran to the helm and grabbed hold of the wheel to try to steer the ship to safety. And, and in great fear, and in the midst of death, fearing death, and in the depths, he cried out to God, not to curse him, but to ask for mercy. And from there, hours went on, and only sustained by the mercy of God, he was able to lead the ship to safety. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we, already, we have already come. Was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. From that day on, he had a slow progress. He still struggled with his desires for the pleasures of this world, but it was from that point on that ship, in that storm, that the Lord had saved him and began to sanctify him. He stopped blaspheming God, and he began to read scripture once again. He found his hope of salvation, trusting in the imputed righteousness of Christ, and every year, John Newton would mark March 21st as a day of humiliation and praise because God had delivered him from the raging storm and from his wretched life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And so, Christian, I ask you, where were you when the Lord found you? Psalm 130 is one of the most treasured of all the Psalms because it has brought many to see the immense mercy and forgiveness of God. The Psalm was instrumental in saving the preacher John Wesley. 
It was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms, and he referred to it as the Pauline Psalm. The Puritan John Owen went on to write about a 430-page exposition of this very small psalm, which remains saved to be one of the richest books on the forgiveness of God. And so as we get to the psalm, we see that it's in the middle of what's called the Songs of Ascents. If we look at verse 1, just above verse 1, it says a song of ascents. Now, what are these? These songs were sung by God's people as they ascended up to Jerusalem to attend the feast and make sacrifice for their sin. And so the author of this particular psalm, he is actually unknown, but that is likely because it was a common song that was sung among Israel. And so, so imagine being in their shoes. They were ascending up to Jerusalem in order to go to have a high priest intercede on their behalf in order to make sacrifice for their sin, in order to participate in the many feasts and festivals that celebrated God's mercy and loving kindness. But as they ascended that long hill, also remember that they were faced with their inadequacy, the fact that they had to ascend up to Jerusalem, the fact that they had to make continual sacrifice for sin, not only that, but they're faced with their many, the many past sins of Israel. They were, in exi- they were exiled for 70 years. They, they wandered in the wilderness and worshipped idols and turned away from God. They were greatly guilty of many sins, and they were, they were faced with that. They, they're aware of that, of their rebellion, their inadequacy to, to bring themselves before God. And so, apart from God, they know that they are left desolate and condemned. They are left in the depths. They are, as John Owen said, at the mouth of the grave. They are drowning in the depths of the ocean, and all they can do is cry out to the God who saves. And now I have a proposition for you today. The proposition is this. Out of the depths, we remember the Lord's mercy. Out of the depths, we remember the Lord's mercy. And I have three points in response to that. My first point is this. We remember by crying out to the Lord. Verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, hear my voice. Here we get the setting, the stage. It's, in a sense, a prologue to the journey that God's people are on. They are in the depths. Out of the depths, I cry to you, oh, Lord. It's a term often used throughout the Old Testament, and you will find it often used to describe valleys or or deep waters. In Psalm 69, King David writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I have come into deep waters. Waters. The Hebrew word used there is the same word used to describe the depths in our text today. King David was in the depths and he's crying out to the God who saves. He feels like he's in a mighty ocean, like the weight of the ocean is bearing down on him. And yet he cries out to God. And I, I can't help but think of the story of Jonah. Turn with me if you if you if you can to uh Jonah chapter 2. You know, after Jonah had run, ran from God, refusing to go to the people of Nineveh, refusing to obey God, a great storm came upon him and the crew that he was with. 
And we all know the story. He was swallowed by a fish that God had sent. And so while he was in the belly of the, of the fish, knowing he had no hope of salvation, he's in the belly of a fish. He, he has no hope apart from the hope that he finds in the Lord. And so, knowing he has no chance of survival, listen to what he says as he describes his experience of being cast into the ocean in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And he goes on to to say in verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars were closed upon me forever. Jonah was in the depths. He was ruined and without hope. But who did he cry out to? Where did he find his hope of redemption? It was in God. He cries out to Yahweh in his despair. Just like John Newton crying out in the midst of a storm that should have killed him. He cries out to the Lord. And so the psalmist in our text this morning has found himself in a similar situation. He's in the depths, but what what depths is he referring to? Now, he's obviously not talking about literal depths as in the ocean. And many can see this, and I think we should see this applied to our many circumstances we find ourselves in life. We're often in despair, and we have to face sickness the loss of loved ones, cancer, the loss of jobs, and um, difficult times that we have to go through. And those can definitely be the depths. And we should understand that. Right now, during this pandemic, we are definitely in the depths. But where are we going to look? Who are we going to cry out to while we're in that depth? Those depths. And I also think, though, that the psalmist has a different type of depth in mind here. Now, what I think he is saying is that he is in the depths of sin and guilt and condemnation. It is a far greater depth than anything else that can come about in our lives. Because he knew he was guilty of his sin. Israel knew that they were guilty of many sins against God. And so they're crying out under the, the, in the depths, under the weight of their sin, as the, the waves of iniquities crashing around them. And if the Lord does not deliver them, then they are condemned. They have no hope of salvation. And so what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's crying out to the Lord to hear his voice, to hear him crying out from the depths. And what's the substance of his cries? They're pleas for mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me. And this is also showing that that the psalmist is repentant. He sees the heinousness of his sins and he's turning from it and looking to God and crying out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He has broken God's sin or He has broken God's law, and he has broken under the weight of his sin. And then to continue his cry for mercy, he looks to the forgiveness of God in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, have an account 
of every single sin that I have ever committed, Lord, how could I stand? Now, the psalmist is not saying here that, that God, by not marking iniquities, doesn't acknowledge sin or doesn't see sin. No, because he does hold us accountable. We are held accountable and guilty of a multitude of sins before a holy God. And the psalmist knew that. He felt that as he was in the depths. So what he is saying, however, is that if God were to condemn his people, if he were to pour out his wrath and judge all his people for all their sins, then none would be able to stand before them before him. They would be ruined. If God unraveled the miles upon miles long scroll of every single sin that we've ever committed and judged us for every single sin, then we would be ruined. And God would be just in doing it. But why doesn't he? Because with him, there is forgiveness that he may be feared. So even though there is a record of our sin, God, as Charles Spurgeon said, does not act upon the record, but he lays it aside till another day. God does not accredit his people's sins to them or give them the judgment that they deserve, but in his patience he passes over sin, not marking their iniquities against him them. In the psalmist, he saw his sin and saw the holiness of God and knew that there was no chance that he could stand before him. And so, it was a, so in his cry of despair, he cries out, for forgiveness to the one whose law he has transgressed. And in crying out, he knows and proclaims that there is forgiveness with God. The forgiveness that, that is only found in him. And he forgive, in the forgiveness, God forgives that he may be feared. Now, isn't that interesting? But the response to those that have been forgiven is out of fear. He doesn't say that, that God may be loved or that we may obey God, though we should but it's specifically focusing in on fear because those who are true, truly repentant should fear God when they see their sin and when they turn from their sin. It's the name used here for the Lord is Adonai. It's, it's another name used for God. It's the reverent name of God in the Old Testament. And so only those that have been truly forgiven, they're the ones that should fear God. And that was the purpose in God, fear, in God forgiving them. Because they have seen God. They have seen the one who can sentence judgment in an instant. They have seen the sovereign king hold their eternal destiny in his hands. They have seen him whom they have sinned against extend his hand of mercy and give pardon to their sin. This does and should cause God's people to reverently fear him, to tremble before the fact that God has forgiven them of all their sins. And it's only this, this forgiveness, this reverent, it's only this reverent fear that God's people cry out to him, and they should cry out to him out of the depths. So Christian, when you are in the depths, cry out to the Lord. When your back is breaking because of the weight of your sin, when you're faced with your guilt, knowing how unworthy you are, knowing all the things that you've done, cry out to God. Because remember that we once were in the depths of condemnation, deserving of wrath, but yet we cried out for mercy and God forgave us.
So cry out to God and remember what he has done for us. Now to my second point. We remember by waiting upon the Lord. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. The psalmist here transitions to a different response to God's forgiveness. That is, to wait upon him. Now, waiting is not an easy thing. I can't stress that enough with our current situation. Some of you, have our, 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 some of you are ready to graduate, and the rest of us just are ready for summer to come. You know, and we're, we're just waiting for things to get back to normal and for this virus to go away. We, we're waiting and waiting. And, and, and for those of us who have been in school for many years, we've been waiting since our freshman year to finally graduate, taking it month by month, year, semester by semester, paper by paper, test by test, waiting and looking towards the end goal. And so the psalmist here is also waiting upon the Lord and it is a certain kind of waiting. It's a focused waiting. This is a period of patience and trusting, knowing that God will fulfill his promises. God will bring the forgiveness that he has promised. And the psalmist, he yearns for that restored relationship with God. And, with, and he has God as the end goal of his waiting. And as he's waiting, what does he look to? End of verse 5. And in his word, I hope. He hopes in God's word. His word that is breathed out by him, that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. What a great time it is now for us that, that who, who have some extra time in our hands, whether, whether we're not working as much or you know, we're not having to go to class every day, just watching on Zoom. We, we may have more time on our hands. So what great opportunity it is to, to dwell in Scripture as we are in this period of waiting waiting for things to get back to normal. And as we wait, we are to wait in his word. We dwell in it. We, we meditate upon it. And notice that it's, it's God's word that the psalmist can turn to to know that he is forgiven, to know that his sins are no longer imputed to him. And so it's in this time of waiting, he turns to the only thing that will sustain his weary soul. And yet it's a common temptation for us to look elsewhere for our hope and for our restoration. Maybe some, some of you who do have more time on your hands have been more quick to go to Netflix, YouTube, or play video games in order to pass the time and find satisfaction in your time of waiting. Now, I'm not condemning those things, but I do want us to examine our hearts to see where it is that we have been turning to as we wait. Where are we finding our hope? Where are we finding our restoration? Because the psalmist understood that he had no hope apart from the hope that is found only in God's word. And the psalmist goes on to give an example of how it is that he is waiting as he hopes in his word. Verse 6, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. You see, the watchmen were those who would sit all night to guard a city. They would wait all night and earnestly long for the morning to come when the city would be safe and those that come, from those that come at night. And so they wait eager, with eager expectation for the morning dawn. And in a greater way, notice he says, more than watchmen for the morning. 
In a greater way, the psalmist waits with eager expectation for God. And as he is waiting, what is he doing? Like I said, go back to verse 5. He, in his word, I hope. He's hoping in God's word. He's leaning in. He's searching, dwelling, meditating on his word, mining the riches that are to be found in it. More than watchmen searching, waiting for the morning that is surely coming. More than watchmen for the morning, I hope in the Lord. I wait upon him in his word. Knowing that what God promised will come to pass. And also notice the repetition. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, when something is repeated twice or to the third degree, it's, it's used to show the significance of that. As we know in Isaiah 6, God is, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. So it, it's to show to the greatest degree that God is holy. And so here, the psalmist is repeating himself to show, show how, much, how eagerly and expectantly he is waiting. His soul, and not... Even his soul is waiting. All that he is, is waiting, knowing that the Lord is his only sustainer and provider. And knowing that God's not waiting upon us. We, we sometimes make God wait for us when we're like, well, I'll, I'll go read scripture tomorrow. I'll, I'll, set this, I'll set this aside for another time. I'll, I'll serve you next month at church. I'll I'll do this later. I want to do what I want now. You can wait upon me. No, no, we we wait upon him because our only chance of rescue from the depths is in him. And our only hope in the periods of waiting is in him. And this waiting is for our benefit because as we patiently wait, our faith is being tested and tried. It teaches us to submit to God alone and delight in only Him. And it makes the blessings so much richer when they do come. And this has always been the case for God's people. They've always, God's always placed them in periods of waiting. As they were enslaved in Egypt, as they were in the wilderness, as they were exiled during the Babylonian exile. Though they were not patient in their waiting, God still made them wait to test them and try them. And not only that, but they also waited all the way from the beginning of time for a Messiah. For a Messiah that would come to redeem them of all their sins. Who would come to crush the head of the serpent. So they wait eagerly knowing that God will keep his promises. That he will fulfill what it is that he promised. And so as we remember what God has done for us, we wait upon him. Now on to my third and final point. We remember by placing our hope in the Lord. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. The psalmist now changes his focus from himself to how Israel should live in response to God's mercy and forgiveness. He exhorts them, giving them an imperative. Hope in Yahweh. Because Yahweh is Israel's sovereign Lord. Therefore, they should put their hope only in him. Hope in him. But what does it really mean to hope? 
our modern idea of hope has, has very much waned because we, we, we tend to just say, oh, I hope for this, I hope for this, I hope it doesn't snow tomorrow, I hope my finals go well. You know, it's, it's this wishful thinking. But our wishful thinking is not the hope that the psalmist has in mind. No, it's a faithful hope, a trusting hope, a hope in God for the salvation that is only found in him. And the psalmist goes on to give two reasons why Israel should hope in God. The first reason is because with, with him, there is chesed, there is steadfast love. You see, with us, there is abounding sin, but with the Lord, there is abounding love, mercy, and grace. We can and must hope in the only one who can forgive us of our many sins. And, and since we come to him with no worth, no merit of our own, it should be enough for us that he is merciful to us. And that's what it means for God to have steadfast love. It's a redeeming love, a loyal and faithful love for his people. And then the second reason given is because with him is plentiful redemption. And then verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. With the Lord, there is plentiful or abundant redemption. Think about this. Israel understood their need for redemption. And they understood that redemption is only found in the Lord. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And God chose to rescue them through his servant Moses. To redeem them from their slavery. Israel was exiled for 70 years. And it was God who brought them back. They knew that God would keep his covenant promises. They knew that God is abundant in, redemp in redemption and that it is where they found their hope. And so, remember, they're, they're ascending. They're making their way up to Jerusalem. And as they're ascending, they're getting closer. They're making their way. They're about to make sacrifice to their God for their sins. And God is about to remove their iniquities. But not fully. Because there was only a temporal fulfillment. And surely they would have understood this. As they continually watched the lambs be sacrificed. And saw the scapegoats take their sins out of the camp. Into the wilderness. As they watched, they would have felt a sense of unfulfillment. Of incompleteness. Their sins were atoned for, yes but only for a time because the same sacrifices need to be offered over and over again. But as they ascended the mountain, they went up to Jerusalem. They still sang this glorious song, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God will do this. What hope they had, knowing that what is happening is pointing to something greater, knowing that even though they are experiencing the type of the antitype, God will still keep his covenant promise. Even though the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, as Hebrews 10 says, God will still one day remove some of their iniquities. No, all of their iniquities. And God will do this through a servant. His servant, who, as Isaiah 53 says, was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All their iniquity, all of our iniquity, all our transgressions, sin was borne by him. He stood in our place where we should have stood, and he was crushed for our sin. And as Israel ascended up to Jerusalem to celebrate God's forgiveness and mercy, they were left with a promise that was yet to be fulfilled. And as they saw the temporal nature of the sacrifices and feasts, as they saw the sacrifices need to be offered over and over again, as they saw the blood that needs to continually be spilled to atone for their sin, they looked forward. They looked to the day when God would redeem his people from all their sin. And now just as they ascended up to Jerusalem, we now look up and stand in the shadow of the cross. We see the fulfillment of all that God promised to his people. We see the fulfillment that they were looking for. We no longer ascend to the temple, but we look to the one who tore down the veil and the one who offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin and the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf as our great high priest. We look and see the one who willingly went to the depths and took us out and stayed there. The one who cried out from the depths, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out, but heard no answer. And he was crushed under the wrath of his father because he bore our sins and took the punishment that we deserved. And so out of the depths, we look to the one who was despised and rejected. We look to the one who bore every single one of our iniquities, all the wicked sins that we had committed against him. This is our Savior. Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, as Hebrews 10 says. And just as the psalmist waited upon the Lord while looking to his word, knowing that he is forgiven, we now have God's full revelation of himself in Jesus. And now we can know, as Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God has forgiven us of all our trespasses, every single one, every thought, intention, deed, everything we've done or have not done, every time we've rejected God and turned from God, every rebellious act has been taken away. And now we can look up and see our sins nailed to the cross. And now we, when we were in the depths, cried out for mercy. We cried out to the God who saves, the God who forgives, the God who redeems. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross do we cling, because we have no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And it was all done when Christ cried out, it is finished. Though he was in the grave for three days, he did not remain. He did not remain in the depths, but rose from the dead in victory, conquering sin and death. 
and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf. Do you remember? Do you remember when the Lord found you, when God saved you? At the, at the end of his life, John Newton, he'd lost his beloved wife. He'd faced sickness. His eyesight was gone. His memory was fading. And yet as he neared death, he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Oh, what amazing grace this is, that God saves wretched sinners like us. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Do not forget God's grace towards you. And when your life draws towards its end, may you remember two things, that you're a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And so in the depths, we cry to Jesus, we wait upon Jesus, and we hope in Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is living and it's active and that it affects us, that it pierces us. I pray that you may take your word and apply it to the lives of everyone here, that they may be convicted of sin, and they may turn to you and trust you with salvation that's only found in you. And when we are faced with our guilt and our shame, may we quickly look to you and your forgiveness, knowing that all our sins were placed upon the sinless one. Help us to rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in our Savior, for through him you have shown us amazing grace. Lord, I pray as we go forth today that we may delight in you, we may rejoice in you, may trust in you through this pandemic. May we make much of you to those around us, those that are in this world that are without hope, that are in great despair. Lord, may we be quick to share the hope of the gospel, the hope that is found in Jesus, so that out of the depths they can cry out to you for mercy. We thank you, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.